If you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah 2, we'll be taking verses 1 through 13, which is actually all of Zechariah. While you're opening there, we have been in this uh, sermon series, Homecoming and Heart Checks. I've been kind of driving it home. I know that it could be even potentially annoying at this point that I keep bringing it up, right? This sermon series title and what it is that we're talking about, but... Uh, it's very important because I believe that, that Haggai and now Zechariah uh, are a, a most applicable text for us today. Not only for our church, but also for our time. Now, all of God's word is applicable at all times, okay? However, uh, that is not to say that there aren't some parts and pieces that are most applicable, okay? And so I see here something that's quite important because as we are coming home into a church life that we hope is like before, it won't be. Things will be different and that's good and it's bad and it's everything in between and we need to begin to see what it is that the Lord is doing on our hearts because as we begin to come home, God is doing a heart check. He has done it before, he's doing it now, and he does it again. God works in this way, and we should not neglect it to see what it is that the Lord might have for us. So, as we look here into Zechariah, just one word before we dive into our text. This is um, coming in a part of Zechariah's written prophecies and oracles where uh, a lot of people will call them visions or scenes. In a lot of ways, it looks like a pop-up book. And each time you turn the page, you get another pop-up picture of something that's going on that God wants us to know. It's very pictorial. Uh, the the, the uh, technical term we might call, say is apocalyptic. It's like the book of Revelation in the New Testament. It's like Daniel in certain parts and pieces. And so when we look here, we see these vast realities given to us, as I mentioned with the children, with an angel with a ruler. Uh, you're thinking, you know, what are we doing here? But it, it's, you can see it, right? That's a, that's a vision that you can see. It's not that complicated, but there's a depth of something going on. And, and we'll, we'll keep diving into these as we go on. Uh, this is just chapter 2, right? And if you kind of keep flipping, you'll see these different visions that Zechariah has with some attached prophecy as we move through and see what kind of heart check the Lord is trying to give his people. This morning, as a main point for us to kind of try to pull these things together, we're going to see something that sounds so obvious, but it's so important to the Christian, not the Christian life, the Christian person, okay? Uh, this is important to the Christian the follower of God. It is of vital importance. The main point is this. God is active on behalf of his people. God is active. His people are not active. God is active. It is vital for the Christian to know this. We see it today. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, bless the reading of this word. This is how you have ordained it to be, to change souls. The reading and especially the preaching of your word. And so, God, would you work a work this morning in our very souls. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Zechariah chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. 
Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of God stands forever. Thanks be to God for such things. Now, let us turn our eyes once again to his word. Remember that main point. God is active. Let's see it in five ways. Y'all are going to love this. Very expository Presbyterian of me. Five points, all starting with P, okay? Preparation. Protection, power, possession, and provocation, okay? Five Ps to show us how God is active on behalf of his people. First, then, God is active in preparing a place for his people. Verses 1 through 4. When Rebecca and I began the process of searching for and eventually buying our first house, we quickly became familiar with the usual home buying terminology, right? Things that when I was in college I just didn't really care about and I didn't know I should care about. One of them being square feet, right? Uh, now everybody, what's the square footage of that place? What's the square footage of that house? That's not, you know, uh, everybody's asking that. I had no idea what in the world they were talking about. The square footage of any given area, it can be found with a very simple calculation. You don't have to rely on somebody else. Length times width. Of course, for footage, in feet, right? Square feet. Verses 1 and 2 of our text this morning. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Length times width. Anyone with a big family knows the beauty of a lot of square footage. Either because you had it 
and really enjoyed it, or you didn't have it and you really wished that you did. Uh, in this vision of Zechariah, the measuring of Jerusalem represents the reality that God is preparing the square footage necessary to bring all his people in. John 14, verses 1 and 2, famous Bible verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Some translations, mansions, right? If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So we see verse 4 of our own text. Multitudes of people and livestock coming to dwell in Jerusalem, in the chosen city, the measured place, the prepared spot. God is active in the preparing of a place for his people. But God is active in more ways than one. And we see that, secondly, because God is active not only in the preparation of a place, but the protection of that place for his people. In verse 5, he does this protecting in two active ways. The first way is on the outside. The second way is on the inside. First, on the outside, God says Jerusalem doesn't need walls because he will be to her a wall of fire. Now, two big things that are happening right now. There is kind of like a rebuilding of the wall that's needing to take place in Jerusalem. That's a big deal, right? We see Nehemiah kind of focusing his efforts on this. The reason being because when a wall goes up, bad guys can't get in. You are fortified. Moreover, Jerusalem's on a mountain. Therefore, people have to come up the mount and then see this wall while they're getting bombarded from the top of it. It is defensible and important. And God says... You don't need it. I'm going to be to you a wall of fire on the outside. And I hope that for us, we might think and realize that this is not the first time we have seen God speaking about walls of fire. In the Exodus, after all of those plagues, after Pharaoh says, get out, they leave, right? And while they are going, Pharaoh says, wait a second, right? Uh, and his heart was hardened once again and with his army he goes after God's people and they catch up to him. But something is blocking their way. God himself manifests in a smoky pillar and then a fiery pillar. So you've got this, this cloud, this, this cloud of smoke by day so you can't get past it. It's like uh, walking into wood smoke but it would be forever and you can't get past it without getting pushed back, okay? I can't get in there. Then at nighttime, we'll just wait till the nighttime. Maybe the smoke will dissipate. Maybe it'll rise up. I don't know what Moses is doing, but we're gonna wait till nighttime and we're gonna go. What is that? It looks like the smoke caught on fire. Now it's a pillar of fire by night. God is not allowing us past this wall to get to his people. God has revealed himself doing such things before and he says he's going to do it again and again and again. God is active in the outside protection of his people, but he is also active on the inside protection. Notice what he says in verse 5 at the end, and I will be the glory. 
in her midst. It's almost a one-off when you're thinking about the pillar of fire. You think, man, we got a wall of fire. Cool. You know, God's going to be on the inside. Excellent. You know, whatever. Right? But, but we shouldn't whatever God's dwelling and being the glory on the inside. I think that would be a mistake on our part. And it's easy for us to do if we're not actively reading the test. And here's why. Humans fall into a dangerous trap almost daily of thinking physical pain and turmoil is enemy number one. Physical pain and turmoil. I don't want that. If you're going to punch me, I'm going to try to get away from that, right? I, I don't want physical pain, okay? It's enemy number one, right? For us, when we think, we try to avoid those things. When in reality, though, spiritual pain and turmoil is enemy number one. The eternal killer, we might say. The very reason God chastised his people with physical pain and turmoil, that is the Babylonian captivity. Remember, the homecoming is a homecoming from the Babylonian captivity. Okay? Babylon came and wiped off these people in their place and took them away. And now they are coming home from that. God is delivering them. But remember that this was God's hand at work. The physical pain and turmoil. The tumult. The hanging of the harps. This was by God's hand. It was God. And it was to help the people avoid spiritual destruction. Physical pain, physical tumult, it passes. Spiritual pain, spiritual tumult, it's eternal. And God knows it. And so God works to prevent that which is coming. The people of God were walking down a path of faithlessness and unbelief and a lack of care for God and his word. That was where they were going. It is attested by them themselves. They refused to listen to God and his prophets. They refused to over and over. Even when the worst happened, they still turned a blind eye and shut them as tight as they could. And so God took it all away that they might see. God would not allow their path of destruction to continue. So he shocks them out of such things and then promises them the protection that they so desperately needed in the first place which was not physical walls it was that his glory would reside on the inside that God would be the glory and not people or places or things but God himself and so we see God actively protecting in two ways here. On the outside and on the inside. Verse 5, as a reminder. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Which was not true before the exile. Third, God is active in power. Verses 6 through 9. Lest any enemy of God think themselves to be controlling the situation, God announces a couple realities back to back. Number one, 
God himself put his people in exile, not any empire or enemy of him. Verse 6, up, up, free from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. God is claiming his own action. But this should not be surprising to us as we have read the word and seen what it is that he would said. If you are unfaithful, I will send you away from this place and I will bring you home. Number two, God sets up the ability to bring his people home. Verse seven, up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. There are still people who are away from Jerusalem. And God is saying, I am providing you a way home. Come home. There are people who have come before you. And there are more to come. If you are faithful to me, come. Come. Even as we come. Even this morning. Come. Will you come to me? God is calling and providing a way. Number three. If you mess with God's people, you mess with God himself, and God is not to be trifled with. Verse 9, but really, we also see verse 8 in there, but verse 9 for our, for our intents and purposes. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. That is, the enemies that have touched God's people. I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Once again... The exodus is helpful for us to remember because not only is there a mirror in deliverance through protection, right? You remember the pillar of fire? There's also a mirror in deliverance through power. That is the plundering of the nations. If you recall, before Pharaoh and his army giddied up and rolled out after Moses and God's people, those plagues happened. And when Pharaoh's firstborn died, he said, get out. And as they were getting out, maybe you remember as they walked down the street that they took all the valuables from those that were around them. They plundered the nation of Egypt and that nation allowed them to do so. For God had worked in those hearts and stricken the fear of God himself in his enemies that they might plunder. And what does God say here? The exact same thing. When you mess with my people, you mess with me. You think that they are lowly. You think that they are weak. You think that they don't have numbers, but they have me and I will give them everything and it will come from you. God is active in his power for his people. Now, these first three points that God has acted in preparing a place, that he is protecting his people, that he is showing his power for his people, it reveals a constant reminder of Scripture. And that's our fourth point, that God is active in the possession of his people. Verses 10, 11, and 12. There are many facets to the beautiful diamond of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we look at God's word, we see this good news all throughout. And as we read and learn and study different books of the Bible, different verses of the Bible, different parts and pieces, different genres, song and prophecy and narrative and history and wisdom. And as we see all these things, we see different facets of the gospel we begin to see a full picture of who God is and what he's doing and we realize that we haven't even started learning the majority we're still in the minority of how good God is and it seems overwhelming to ourselves it's that good it's the facets 
that we begin to see. One of those facets that seems to be repeated over and over and over in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, it goes and transcends all genres. It is clear that God is giving to us something that we so desperately need in our fallen state. And it is this reality that God looks at you and God chooses you. God looks at you and God chooses you. All right, let's do a test. Uh, dodgeball. Who's going to get picked first? Right now. Straight up. Whatever you're wearing, whoever you are right now, who's getting picked first for dodgeball? <laughs> are you thinking not me? <laughs> I heard Judy, Judy whisper to me just now. She said she wanted to be picked first. She says she's ready to go. Right? Dodgeball. Who's picking you first? Football. Chess. Public speaking, business management, whatever it is, try to think of something you could be picked at first. Let's think of some others. How about anger? Who's going to get picked first? Don't act like you won't. What about immorality? What about laziness? How about lying? Yeah, I choose you. How about malice? Idolatry. What are your sins? What are your sins? What are those things that you struggle with? Those things that, that you know from God's word you know you must conquer them. That you must put them to death. But it seems like you're the one being put to death by them. What are your weaknesses? For God surely knows them. You might trick me. You might trick your spouse. You might trick your children and your co-workers, your friends and your family. And they might think of you in a way that you want them to. But do you think of yourself that way? That's hard. It's uncomfortable. And it's the reality of the situation. And because of what Jesus has done, God looks at you. All of you. And chooses you. That's the gospel. You know, Jesus' perfect life was a perfect life that we can't live. And so now he's got this perfect life where we are weak in our many varied ways. Then he goes to the cross willingly, like a lamb led to slaughter, silent. And as he is hung on the cross, the wrath of God bears down upon him. But he is perfect. The wrath of God bears down upon him in substitution for every single sin and weakness that you were thinking of right now. And if you couldn't think of one, he is doing it for you too. 
That's the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And as we believe in him, as the Spirit grants us that capability and gives us that gift, there is a great transfer of Jesus' righteousness and our sin. And, and as Jesus takes our sin, his righteousness is put upon us and we are found holy and blameless before the Lord. That's the good news. And the family of God is much larger than we might like to think sometimes. Verse 11 says that many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. What do you think they're crying? Do you know this Bible verse? Salvation belongs to our God. Not to me or you. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the good news. That God looks at you and chooses you, not the other way around. God is active on your behalf. He possesses a people. You do not possess God. He possesses you. And in that, there is a great and wonderful moment of adoption that cannot be taken away, hindered, or removed. And that is good news. Very good news. God is active in his preparation, in protection and in power, in the possession of his people. And fifthly, God is active in his provocation of humanity. Verse 13. No one can say that God does not communicate. Even our call to worship. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. Verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God as creator is above all, outside of time and restriction, and yet willingly comes down from this lofty heavenly place to communicate to creation, to you and to me. He, he actually restrains himself and puts his truth on paper. Now think about this. His word, as it is revealed, is necessarily constraining on something that cannot be constrained. But he puts it in a way that we can understand it because we must have something to see and to behold and to know. And so God does it. What humility of the Lord. He is above all. He's outside of these things. It's even hard for our brains to grasp it. It borders onto, onto the philosophical because we just can't make it there. And yet he does. He comes over that line and comes to us. He communicates his power. He communicates his desires. He communicates his expectations. And at the very same time, he communicates his love, mercy, and grace. 
God provokes humanity into a decision. He has roused himself out of the heavenly place. And there is a call to stand and be silent reverently before him. And this forces us to look past ourselves and into the full reality of the situation, which is either an eternal life spent in the pleasure of God or in the displeasure of God. There is no in-between. Are you in a place in your life where you can be provoked by God to think on these things? Or is this just another sermon on another day where you can't wait to get on to the next thing? Because God is provoking us to an answer. Because God is active in so many ways, we do him a monumental disservice to live the spiritually comatose lives that we do. Here are five applications to perhaps get us waking up a little bit. Five applications, five points. We'll speed through them. Number one, if God prepares a place for his people, are you looking forward to that place? Don't just give the Sunday school answer either. You know, yeah, yeah, of course, I'm looking forward to heaven. No, don't move on. Consider the question. Are you looking forward to the place God promises? And if not, what's holding you back? What are you so attached to or obsessed with that it hinders your view of the heavenly place and include the, quote, good things? Number two, if God protects his people, why do you feel it necessary to defend yourself against the smallest of perceived slights? Are you more concerned with God's reputation or your own? How does this reflect in your life? Number three, if God is powerful for his people, even plundering the nations, why do you crave power so much? And if you say, I don't want power, let me change the word. Why do you crave control so much? Is God's control and plan in your life enough for you? Or are your actions revealing your own displeasure with God? Number four, if God has adopted you, that is, possessed his people, can you acknowledge that his adoption has no basis on your looks or actions? In fact, in spite of your looks and actions, he has chosen you. Is this the message of the gospel that you hold in your heart and that you share with others? The one that offends, not others but yourself. Number five, if God provokes his people to consider him, do you even consider God in your life? Why do you treat others the way you do? Why do you pay your bills? Why do you care for your children and grandchildren the way you do? Why do you do the things that you do? Are you considering God in those things? That's not a pastor over-spiritualization of life thing. That's a Christian thing for us to consider the Lord as he provokes us to such things. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord 
for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. If there is an inkling of spirituality in us, it is here at verse 13 that we as a people must pause. It is here that we must consider God anew and in light of his activeness on our behalf fall to our knees or stand in praise or clasp the hand or renew ourselves in the life around us, whatever it might be, it is at verse 13 that we pause and we obey. Be silent, all flesh. The Lord himself has roused out and is coming for you. God is active. Yes, we do stuff. God is active on your behalf for those who believe in the Lord Jesus. For this, we rejoice. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your activeness, that you do come for your people. There is no other way for us to be saved. Lord, help us to remember such things, to ponder on such things, to apply such things, but only by your Spirit can it happen. And so God, please work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.